so the reading of scripture this morning is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may properly walk before outsiders and dependent and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please be with us this morning and open our eyes and our ears to the gospel that you've set before us. Be with Alan as he preaches your word. Give us grace that we may clearly understand it. Help us to live out this week as you would have us to. We pray and trust in your most holy name. This week, as we pick up where we left off in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see what the Apostle Paul says about work. And first, I think we need to be clear about what we mean by work, because what we don't mean is just your job. Not everyone has one of those. You might be a student or a stay-at-home parent. You might be retired after years of working a job. Or you might be disabled and unable to have one or just in between jobs and and frustrated at not having one. But what Paul says here still matters to you nonetheless because it concerns a lot more than just the, the eight or so hours a day you might spend at an office or on a job site in order to get a paycheck. To be sure, I don't think that Paul means less than that, but certainly we're talking about more. And so if we say what we mean by work is something more than just a job or an occupation, then we might mean it to mean either something broader than an occupation or or something narrower. If it's something broader, then we might speak of work in terms of of vocation, a word that comes from the, the Latin root vocare, which means to call. We might talk about your calling, the specific role that God has designed you to to fill in the world and everything that that involves, from your job to your family, your role as a a spouse, a parent, or a child, or or as a neighbor in your community. It's the sum of, of everything that God calls you to do and to be in the world. But I'm not sure that that's exactly what Paul is concerned with here in 1 Thessalonians either. Really what I think what we mean by work here is is something narrower. It's not just your occupation or your entire vocation, but your labors, the individual tasks that you set your hands to, that you spend your time, your efforts, and your energy on, from sweeping the floor or preparing a meal to paving a road or waiting a table from performing surgeries or coding computer programs to bagging groceries writing books, writing songs, writing emails, or writing speeding tickets, cleaning toilets, teaching math, making coffee, growing tomatoes. All of these things might add up to comprise our our occupations and our vocations, but the work itself, our labors, will see, are a fundamental part of what it means to be a human. Because Genesis 1 says that we were made in the image of a creator, a worker who put his hands into the stuff of matter to make something out of nothing. 
And once that thing he made was broken, he didn't give up on it or or throw it away, but he set his hands about the work of redeeming it, fixing it, making it to be new once again. And that theme of, of redeeming, is this something, redeeming something that's broken, I think is a crucial part of our conversation about work. It's actually one of those carrying themes throughout both of these Thessalonian letters. One of Paul's main emphases to the church in Thessalonica is that Jesus hasn't just left us to our own devices, but that he is coming again. We call this events by the Greek word parousia, It's that future time when when Christ will descend from heaven to judge the earth, to usher in the final redemption and and to bring his kingdom in its fullness. And I think this event, the, the parousia, is central to understanding Paul's writings to the Thessalonians. And let me show you what I mean by that. This this letter of First Thessalonians is structured around these two blessings that Paul prays over the church. And in these blessings, the the goal that Paul has in mind, the the thing that he's praying towards, is the day when Jesus comes back. You can see it first at the end of chapter 3, about halfway through the book. He says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then at the end of chapter five, towards the end of the book, he closes the letter by saying, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This event of of Christ's return is something that the Thessalonians seem to have seriously misunderstood. And we see that because in in Paul's second letter that he sends to them that we'll be talking about in a few weeks, it it seems like someone has convinced them that the the parousia has already happened, that Jesus already came back and and they missed it. And so it's no surprise that they would misunderstand how our hope in Jesus' return should affect the way that we ought to live our lives today in the meantime. That's a major part of what Paul is trying to, to set straight for them in these two letters that he writes, including what they have certainly misunderstood about how that affects our work. But what I would argue, or I would argue that's something that, that we often misunderstand too. Many of us have been conditioned to, to think of, of heaven, of, of the kingdom of God that Jesus will come and, and bring to earth. We've thought of it as the end of work. A time when we'll be freed from our labor to enjoy an eternal vacation or an an immortal retirement. But I think that's a misunderstanding, not just of of the kingdom of God, but a misunderstanding of work itself and what work is supposed to be. Because what's true about work and what's really true about heaven is a lot better than just a really long vacation and it's a lot less boring. And so to correct this misunderstanding of work, we have to look back at what it was designed to be in the beginning. And I think this is where we so often go wrong because we remember the curses of Genesis 3 after the sin in the garden and we're tempted to think that work was just a result of sin. But that isn't the case. 
And we'll get there soon enough, but, but work was in the world before sin came to it. If you look at Genesis chapter one, in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over everything else. And then he goes on in verse 28 and says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the whole of his creation, over everything that God had made. And so God made man, he made humankind, and then he immediately gave us work to do. He entrusted us with ruling over the earth that he had made, the world that he made and and loved, and he told us to, to fill it with good things to cultivate the hidden gifts that he had buried beneath its surface, to to make things out of the good stuff that God had made. And this is part of of what God says just is, this is a part of what God says only a few verses later is very good. Work was a part of that world that was very good. Dorothy Sayers wrote that man is a maker who makes things because he wants to because he cannot fulfill his true nature if he is prevented from making things just for the love of the job. He is made in the image of a maker, and he must himself create or become something less than a man. We don't just work because the world is broken and we have to. We work because it's part of who we are as creatures made in the image of a creator. Our work is a participation in God's work of creation, pushing back the darkness of nothingness and making order out of chaos. But then we can also look at the the very next chapter for even a clearer picture. In Genesis 2, we have this description of the newly created world, the land of Eden, the the rivers that are flowing out of it, and, and the garden at its center. And this description, it contains a very particular design pattern. I won't get into the details. If you're interested, I wrote a little more about it in the sermon prep post from Tuesday on our church websites. But the creation in this little account is being set up and described to look something like the tabernacle of Israel in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. And then it says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And that combination of words, work and keep, is is very particular because they're the very same words used to describe what priests do in the tabernacle all throughout the book of Numbers. It's a liturgical language. It's the language of worship. And so what this means is that before the fall, Before sin, before there was any need for atonement or sacrifice, our work, what we do with the stuff God has made, is portrayed as mankind's means of worship. Our work was supposed to be the the fundamental way that we relate to God in the world that he created. The way that we're supposed to, to worship him and enjoy his goodness was by working and cultivating the goodness of the world that he had made. Think about how drastically different that is from the way we so often think about our work as a chore or a burden, an obligation that we, that we wish we could get out of. But there's a very good reason that it does feel that way. 
a reason that comes from what happens next in, in Genesis 3. That was the, the good intention of what work was supposed to be. But then after the man and woman, the first man and woman took the fruits from that forbidden tree, nothing is what it was supposed to be. Part of the result is that work has been twisted into something completely different. Look at what God says to Adam in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mankind was meant to live in God's abundance. And in that place, in the garden, work was supposed to be a, a joy and a fulfillment. But now, since we've been exiled and cast out of the garden, work has been twisted into something that it was never supposed to be, a necessity. Where before, everything we could ever need was, was hanging from trees to be plucked on a whim. Now God says to Adam, by the sweats of your face, you shall eat your bread. The thing that changed about work from one side of, of Eden to the other was that it was reduced to a matter of economic necessity. In other words, it isn't that we were never supposed to have to work, but that we were never supposed to have to work for a living. Living was supposed to be a given thing. It wasn't supposed to be something that we had to, to work for. But after sin brings death into the world, that isn't the case anymore. And of course, this, this all makes perfect sense when we remember what the first sin, and, and all sin for that matter, really was cosmic rebellion against the king of the universe. When Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were rebelling against God, choosing to be the gods of their own lives. If you decide to be your own God, how can you expect anyone else to provide for you except yourself? When you declare yourself to be Lord of your own life, there's no one left to give you what you need, and so you have to earn it. As insurrectionists living in exile, our work is cursed by our own rebellion, no longer to be a joyful service to our king for the welfare of his kingdom, but it can only be a toilsome tribute to our, our self-occupied thrones. And I think many of us are, are still trapped in, in this broken view of work, and it shows up in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, the first is that when we reduce work to a matter of only economic necessity, it becomes mostly meaningless to us. We see work as a necessary evil to be tolerated when we have to, but mostly we just avoid it as much as we can. We come to be cynical about our work, cutting corners wherever possible, doing the bare minimum that we can just to get by with, because we don't think the work is, is worth our time, time that we would rather spend on, our, on ourselves. Because when you see work as, as no more than just something that you have to do, just so you can pay the bills, just so you can finish school and then get out and do something that you'd rather do, then what's the point in caring about your work? What's the point in, in bothering to do it well? If, if C's get degrees, then, then why try any harder than that? If you get paid by the hour, then 
why not take an extra hour just to finish the job? When work is just a means to an end and, and not a good in itself, then, then why shouldn't we just use it for our own selfishness, how, however it suits us? Now look what Dorothy Sayers wrote, and this was some 80 years ago, but it might be more true now than it was then. She says, we have come to set a strange value on leisure for its own sake. Not the leisure which enables a man to get on properly with his job, but the leisure which is a polite word for idleness. The commodities which it is easiest to advertise and sell are those which purport to take the work out of everything. The switches and gadgets that save time and make leisure. Which would be grand if we eagerly needed that extra time and leisure in order to make and do things. But alas, the commodities that are easiest to sell after the labor-saving gadgets are the inventions for saving us from the intolerable leisure that we have produced, for painlessly killing the time that we have saved, the entertainments to which we can passively listen, the game we can watch without taking part in, the occupation, however meaningless, which can relieve us from the trouble of thinking. As a result, far too many people in this country seem to go about only half alive. All their existence is an effort to escape from what they're doing. And it seems like this, this might have been a little of, of what Paul was addressing in, in Thessalonica. The, the Christians there, he, he commends them for being so loving toward one another that it seems like some people are taking advantage of that and relying on other people to provide for them in order to keep from having to work. But our broken view of work also uh, leads, it leads some to avoid it as much as possible, but it can also lead to the opposite problem. Since the curse of sin has, has made it so that work is, is by necessity self-serving, we need it to provide for ourselves. Now we've started to look for work to be, to be everything, to give us everything we could possibly want. We make our work our source of identity, the thing that gives our lives meaning and validates our whole existence. We look to the things that, that we can accomplish through our work to tell us that our lives matter, that we're more than just a waste of space. And so instead of, of, working, of avoiding work at all costs, we bury ourselves in it, working endlessly just to earn our place in the world. But the worst part is, is that never works. The weight of our soul is too great for our work to bear. No amount of accomplishment or achievements, no amount of wealth or status gained by our labors can ever be enough to make us feel secure. And so you work yourself into the ground trying to earn for yourself the value and identity that you were only ever supposed to find in God. Or maybe you actually do accomplish all you'd ever hoped for. You work hard enough, you earn and, and save enough to, to be able to retire and enjoy the life that you've built for yourself. You get everything you, you thought you ever wanted and it turns out to be hollow and empty because your whole identity was caught up in the work that you did to get there and, and now that's gone and you have nothing left. But the point is that, that both of these excesses Overworking and underworking, they both result from a perspective of work that is entrenched in the curse of sin. It's the perspective that, that your life, your time, your effort, all of it is, is all about you. 
And when your work is something to be only used for yourself, it's because it's been twisted into something that it was never supposed to be. But we know that the story doesn't end here in in Genesis 3. The whole rest of the Bible is, is the story of God taking the broken, twisted thing that we've made out of his good world and making it to be new again. The reduction of work to economic necessity isn't the way that it has to be anymore because Jesus rescues us out of our brokenness and is set about the work of redeeming everything that our rebellion against God has broken. And so here in in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is, is showing us how we should view our work in light of that redemption, how we ought to work since Jesus is coming back. And so what does Paul say about the problem of work in the Thessalonian church? Well, he starts by talking about what they've been really good at, loving each other. He says that they don't need to to learn from him about brotherly love because the way that they love each other shows that it was God himself who taught them how. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need of writing to you. For you yourselves are God taught to love one another. For indeed you practice it to the brothers in all of Macedonia. But then look at the way he shifts from talking about brotherly love to work in verse 11. But we urge you, brothers, to abound still more and to aspire to be still and to attend to your own affairs and to work with your hands just as we commanded you. Paul says to to keep growing in love, abound still more in in love for one another, but, but then the way that he gives them to do that is through their work. He's telling them to use their work not just for themselves, not just for their own sake to provide for your own needs, but use your work to be a blessing to others. If work wasn't just, sorry, if work wasn't just a means to feed ourselves after we got kicked out of the garden, but if it's a good thing that lets us reflect the image of our creator, then our work should be an image of his work. All of God's work, from creating the world to sustaining it and redeeming it, is done in love, and so ours should be the same. All of our work should be a means of abounding in love for one another, love for for God who gives us work as a gift of grace, love for one another to, to bind the church in unity as a testimony to the love of Jesus, and in love for the world, both the earth itself that God has made and and for the people that he made in his image to fill it. But then look at the way Paul says to love each other by our work. That phrase, aspire to be still, is a little tricky and almost self-contradictory. It's something like, make it your ambition to be unambitious. It's, It's a bit hard to nail down exactly what kind of situation that Paul is speaking into in in Thessalonica. And like we said before, it it seems like there are some people who are are taking advantage of of other people's kindness, uh, using it as a means to keep from having to work. That seems pretty clear from from Paul's second letter uh, when he says that that famous line, whoever doesn't work shouldn't eat. Um, But it also seems like there were some of the Christians in Thessalonica who either either from forsaking work or from a lack of opportunity for it, We're trying to to climb the social ladder into certain groups to to gain status and political advantage within the the structures of their city. 
They're, they're still trying to work for their own selfish ends by, by moving up in the world. And, and so Paul tells them to, to stop trying to work the system. Instead of trying to, to gain status and power just so that you don't have to work, be content with where you are. Be content with what you have. Instead, he says, just work. Work with your hands. It's, it's lost on us how appalling that would be to the first century Macedonian ears. And in ancient Greek culture, philosophers and, and politicians had, had all of the honor. And there was this, this great disdain for manual labor as, as the stuff of, of slaves and, and servants. And think of that, that stereotypical image of, of a guy in a robe sitting on pillows while somebody serves him grapes so he doesn't have to lift a finger. And you're probably not, not too far off from the, the Greco-Roman dream. But, but Paul tells the Thessalonians to forget about all of that. And just work with your hands. And you see, he's writing to a group that's it's probably mostly tradespeople. And he's saying, stick to what you know. Do what you're good at. Do the thing that God has gifted you to do. And use that for good in the world, to, to love other people. And I think this speaks pretty profoundly to us in our culture today. Don't buy into our culture's values and visions of, of success and what it means to, to make it in the world. Sure, it might sound nice to, to fall in with the right crowd or, or win the lottery and get to live in the lap of luxury and leisure, freed from ever having to work another day in your life. But that's only in a world where work is a necessary evil, where work is a second best thing. But if work is, is really a fundamental part of what it, what it means to be humans made in God's image, if work is, is part of the way that we relate to God and, and worship him by enjoying his goodness in the stuff of the world that he made, then we, we should think of being freed from having to work as, as something like being freed from walking on two legs. It wouldn't be a, a freedom at all, but it would change us into something incompatible with who we were made to be. Because to bear God's image is to work for the good of his world. And I know getting rich and famous and not having to work isn't really an issue most of us have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so let's bring this down to earth a bit more. I still think that the way we mostly think about our work is in terms of what we can get out of it, how we can benefit ourselves. Think of when you were in school as a kid or when you sent your kids to school. What was the chief motivating factor in getting an education? Because the way that I remember most of it in, in my childhood was do well in school so that you can get a good job and so that you can earn a living. Even from, from grade school, work was almost entirely about money and, and the life we could build for ourselves through our work. Or else it was about trying to, to be able to avoid the less desirable kinds of work. Stay in school or you'll end up being a garbage man or, or a plumber when you grow up. Never mind the fact that garbage collectors and plumbers make more money than plenty of people with advanced degrees. <laughs> and now we have loads of people with all kinds of student loans and, and a scarcity of, of trade workers because we're all trying to, to avoid work. But of course, it's easy to point out the problems and, and failures of, of society and, and the world at large. But what about when you're deciding which job to take? Do you think more about the salary, the, the benefits, the retirement plan? 
or about which role you can leverage to do the most good in the world. Or more basic still, when you wake up in the morning and head to work or school or wherever you go, what's going on in your head and in your heart? Are you aiming just to suffer through another day so you can get a paycheck or a passing grade? Or do you see each day, each time you go to work as an opportunity to give yourself to the work for the love of your God and for the love of his people? When you set about the the menial tasks of of washing dishes, mowing the lawn, or folding laundry, are they they just dreadful necessities that you just have to to get done and, and over with? Or do you work at them joyfully as labors of of love for your family and for the beauty of your home? Is your work an act of worship to your creator who made you in his image to, to cultivate the goodness of his creation? Or is it just the necessity to which the curse of sin has reduced it? And I know this might sound a little, little starry-eyed and naive, like a nice sentiment or, or an ideal that, that doesn't actually work out in the trenches of, of real life. But I think the reason that it feels that way is because the curse of sin is, is real. It's, it's heavy. The thorns and the thistles that, that plague our work are, are no joke. Our work is, is dreadfully more difficult and painful in every possible way than it was ever supposed to be because the whole world is, is broken. And yet, our God is a worker who reached his hands down into the mess that we made of, of the world, the world that he created and loves, and he is set about the work of healing it and making it new again. Again, Dorothy Sayers says, the first Adam was cursed with labor and suffering. The redemption of labor and suffering is the triumph of the second Adam, the carpenter nailed to a cross. Remember, all of what Paul says about work here in in 1 Thessalonians hangs on the fact that Jesus is coming again that he has done what was necessary to redeem the whole of his creation, and he will one day soon bring that redemption in its fullness. And I think that means two things for us that make the the future hope of of the redemption a present reality and can transform the way that we view our work. One is is that Jesus has dignified every kind of work. The reason that Paul can scandalously tell Christians in Thessalonica to live quietly and work with your hands is because the Son of God left heaven to become a lowly carpenter in Galilee. And then the night before he died, he put on an apron, knelt on the ground, and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. When we use our work to give, our, to give ourselves in love for others, instead of trying to to gain for ourselves, then then no work is beneath us because it's not about us. But there really is no small or insignificant work because every labor that engages in God's work of creation, that pushes back against the darkness of disorder and and the curse of sin is, is drawn up into Christ's work of making all things new. And that work often feels futile and pointless because the broken world is is in decay. 
You dust the mantelpiece only to have to do it again in a few days. You fix something that's only going to break again tomorrow. But since Jesus is coming back, since the whole world is being redeemed, there will be a day when, when the dust won't come back, when that thing that you fix will, will stay fixed forever. Because you see, Jesus' final redemption of all things, that day when the work will, will finally be finished and we'll be free to work with joy and, and delight in our God, that day validates even our small and meager efforts at making things new here and now. And that means that there is no insignificant work. It, it all matters. And because it all matters, we can do it with joy and use it for the love of God and his world. But the second thing that redeems our work is, is maybe even more important. There's a sense in which the curse of Genesis 3 comes as a result of this, this main difference between the inside of the Garden of Eden and then an exile outside it. Inside the garden, we worked from a place of abundance. We're now outside it, our work comes from a place of, of scarcity. It was one thing to work joyfully and, and lovingly with, with a belly full of fruit that you plucked from trees on a whim but it's a completely different thing to work with a growling stomach, aching to produce enough just to keep yourself alive. The reason that we can't give ourselves joyfully through our work is because we're working out of our own emptiness, trying desperately to, to fill ourselves up on things that can never satisfy us. You can't work to please God when you're just trying to appease him and keep him, keep him from being mad at your sin. You can't work to love other people when you have to use those people to try and feel better about yourself. Unless you know that your work can never save you, unless you know that you've been saved by Jesus' work for you, then you can only ever approach your work with selfishness, trapped in the economy of the curse of sin, trying to survive by the sweat of your brow. But when you replace your own emptiness with all the fullness of God given to you by Jesus' work on the cross, then you can be freed to work out of all the abundance of Eden in the kingdom of God. Then you can be freed not from work, because that would be like being freed from being human, but you can be freed to work in love for your God and for his world, participating in his work to make all things new. Because only to the extent that you fully know that you are fully loved and accepted in Jesus can you ever really truly love anyone else. You have nothing to offer from your own emptiness, but you have everything to give from God's fullness. As we finish up, let's look at the reason that Paul gives for those instructions in, in verse 12. He says to live a quiet life and, and work with your hands so that you will walk properly before outsiders and have no need. Two things here really quick. When you view work in light of Christ's redemption, when you work in love as unto the Lord for the good of his world and, and not just for what you can get for yourself, it will drastically change the way your life looks to those who don't believe in Jesus. They'll wonder what's wrong with you. 
how you can do monotonous and, and menial labor with joy and love instead of just groaning and complaining like everyone else. And your life will be a testimony to the work of redemption that Jesus has done in you and a picture of the redemption that he is working in all the earth. And then second, Paul says, when you simply work faithfully at what God has put in front of you to do, not selfishly trying to to build a certain kind of life for yourself, you will have no need. Because in the kingdom of God, you no longer eat by the sweat of your brow, but by the love of your compassionate Father, who will faithfully give you each day your daily bread. You will have no need It sounds a bit to me like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that is a picture of the curse of sin undone. Pray with me. Father, we know all too well the curse of sin and its weight that hangs over the world. And yet Jesus entered into this world to feel and and know all of its pain, all of its suffering. Lord, I pray that all of us who are weary and heavy laden would come to you and, and find in you rest for our souls. Help us to cast off the heavy burden of what work has become in a broken world. And let us take on instead the light yoke of loving and serving you in your kingdom with joy through our labors as as part of your work to make all things new. Through Christ our Lord and by your spirit we pray, amen.